Well, a coacher in Gedalchias, the Sminlam a week as a goal of us and Firkin Fortune, Darship Rum Hin, Van Kele, Sitson, Toy Tash to Love. May I begin by thanking Professor Colin Scott and indeed Dr. Aidan Regan for their generous invitation to me and indeed Professor Colin Scott's generous words of welcome <coughs> and indeed your own very warm welcome, which I so appreciate. I must say, uh, let me begin, of course, by congratulating uh, University College Dublin on the designation of this institute as a Jean Monnet Centre of Excellence uh, in the new political economy of Europe. I do want to thank Professor Melda Maher for accommodating us this evening as well, for providing the whole, as it were. And most of all, I very, very much, as I repeat again, welcome you students who have turned out this evening for our brief reflection. As for myself, it is always a pleasure, and I have always indeed found it to be an inspiration uh, to return to speak in a university setting. And as someone with a deep interest in the development of political economy as an academic discipline, I'm very particularly pleased to have been invited to be part of the launch of this centre and to have the opportunity of welcoming an initiative that will, I know, assist the advancement of new thinking, new teaching, and new research in European political economy. For we are indeed in need of a new discourse. A discourse that might enable us to develop a new mind for Europe, a version of a European Union that can carry the best of our inherited intellectual instincts, and the better instincts of our imagination for the future, one in which the citizens of a real union of European equals might find resonance, find, might find fulfillment of the self and their society. The Centre's stated mission, I quote, to re-engage the street and advance a critical debate on the future of European integration can be a vital part of the evolution of academic thought on many of the significant challenges which face the European Union and on the urgent need to re-engage with the European street. This will require, I suggest, a drawing on the related disciplines of politics, economics, and may I suggest ethics. For is it not a reasonable question to ask of the stuff and nature of that which it is proposed to achieve integration, of what is its nature, and for whom, and with what consequences for lives shared. I use the term discourse very deliberately, for in the present chaotic atmosphere in which we now find ourselves, as we experience the consequences of decision-making making taken without a preceding adequate informing, not to speak of balanced debate as would inform choice, a high price has been paid in institutional, even democratic terms, and all of that is so glaringly obvious. For it is surely worth bearing in mind that in the history of Europe and its member nations too, nearly every significant change in policy of a political economic kind has been preceded by what Duncan Weldon has recently called a battle for ideas. And dare I suggest, that politics had its closest connection to the street when such a battle for ideas could find a resonance in the lives and needs 
of those on the streets. It was also, of course, a powerful version of democracy in action that the outcomes of political economy could be the ground upon which political choices would be fought out and policy decisions would be made. What we need now, I suggest, as we reflect on the future of the European Union, and indeed our global interdependent future, is a sufficiently wide debate on such forms of political economy as can address new challenges. Internal ones, such as the loss of social cohesion within and between member states of our European Union, and external ones, such as responding appropriately to climate change, sustainability, new trade wars, unregulated aspects of a global financialized economy, applications of technology for other than universal benefit, and a growing and deepening inequality reflected in the concentration of wealth and a growing application of capital for speculative rather than productive purpose. So for me, the attraction of speaking here today is there not just in terms of the opportunity it obviously offers me for engagement with bright and inquiring minds, but also because of the opportunity it provides to stress again the essential and urgent role which universities, as dedicated spaces of discourse, can and must play in assisting the understanding of the complexity of our world. University College Dublin has a very fine tradition in European academic research, and your new centre will add to that in fostering an understanding of the European Union, its origins, its ambitions, <coughs> achieved and not achieved, its unity and its diversity, its strengths and its imperfections. And the work you already have underway is of very practical importance for the future development of the Union and for the well-being of its peoples. I can refer, for example, to Dr. Regan and Alison Johnston's relatively recent consideration of the capacity for integration of diverse models of capitalism within the project of integration within the European Union. However, this evening I want myself to provoke a deeper question what do we mean when we speak of a union? A union of what? If we are to give consideration to that deeper question then, it will require of us a consideration of not merely pragmatic considerations of the present, but taking into account, I suggest, those ethical impulses that drove some of the best minds at times of great vulnerability while the horror of war was still present in their consciousness, to reflect and speak of such a union as would obliterate forever the prospect of war. I've written elsewhere that I believe that one of the most morally compelling visions of European integration emerged in the Manifesto of Entertaine, conceived in 1941 by members of the Italian resistance movement from their island prison. Altiero Spinelli and Ernesto Rossi, their manifesto is a remarkable clarion call for a free and united Europe, one dedicated to disarming the worst passions of what had become a distorted European nationalism. They pronounced inter alia that such an ideal could only be achieved and would only be preserved if it was capable of continuing, I quote, the historical process 
of the struggle against social inequalities and privileges. This document is now rightly, I believe, considered one of the founding treatises of the European Union, and its lasting relevance may be seen in the European Parliament building itself, which bears Altiero Spinelli's name. It is a manifesto too, and this is important, which also attests to, I quote, the permanent value of the spirit of criticism. And then it is so fishing, of course, that your centre will bear the name of that most distinguished of Europeans, Jean Monnet. The remarkable thing about Jean Monnet is that he is not simply a cherished curiosity of the past, but rather that his thinking can be invoked as a deeply relevant beacon for the future. In a recent paper I gave at the Brexit Institute at DCU, I stated that I agree with Perry Anderson that it is of no small significance that social considerations came first in Jean Monnet's thinking. In that paper, I went on to recall how the International Labour Organization had been asked to appoint a group of independent experts, led by the Swedish economist Bert Olin, to prepare a report on the social effects of closer European cooperation. The 1956 Olin report recognized that a fear that a reduction in tariffs and the gradual movement towards a tariff-free customs area, when combined with the free movement of capital, would need to an agglomeration of investment in existing centers of industry to the disadvantage of those countries with higher social labor standards, and that those countries then would find it hard to raise from such standards. In a word, many saw the danger of the existing social floor, so hard fought for in the six, becoming a social ceiling. The Olin Report recommended provisions for the free movement of labor, equivalence between paid holiday schemes, and the principle of equal pay for men and women be included in the treaties. And I reference this to make the point that what are now Articles 157 and 158 of the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union were a reflection of the politics that prevailed at the time, that held a hegemony. One thinks, and it's worth the doing so, could one hear these kind of statements today from political leaders in Europe and where? You see, politics does matter, and it is undeniable too that the political context that has prevailed since the 1980s in Europe cannot be separated from our present circumstances, including the circumstances of a reduced role for the state, the loss of social cohesion, the alienation of the street, the loss of resonance in terms of economy with the citizens of the European Union. The summons to give prominence to social policy as a principle of integration for the Union is, I suggest, as appropriate today as it was when it was first articulated by Jean Monnet. It is inextricably linked to the aspiration for enduring peace, stability, inclusion, and sustainable economic life on the wider European continent. The remarkable achievement, which is the European Union of today, is a worthy one. A union in which, to borrow Robert Schumann's phrase, war is not merely unthinkable, but is materially impossible. It serves as a reminder, too, that the European Union, in invoking shared possibilities, is the very antithesis 
of any amplification of fear within nations and people. This is ground that must be held, an invitation to possibilities of the future, rather than suggesting a response to known unstated and unstated fears. I think Jean Monnet's imagination and determination made possible what must to others have seemed impossible in that time, a coming together of peoples and traditions in an unprecedented union. The circumstances of the time, these founding thinkers felt, demanded a new mind for Europe that would go beyond the disastrous competition of anti-democratic, insatiable imperial tendencies that had called forth and delivered wars, wars that would be at the cost of the lives of the young, the poor so much more than the affluent. The new alternative project can well be summarised, perhaps, by quoting the words of one of its founding fathers of what became to be known as the European project. Jacques Delors, who talked of the necessary alliance between competition that stimulates, cooperation that strengthens, and solidarity that unites. This ambition, then, to strike a unique balance between social cohesion, economic competition, and freedom. And today, no doubt, they would have added to it a sensitivity to ecological issues, is what drives so many Europeans of all ages to aspire to a European Union that might yet reach a full and inviting potential. However, we have entered a period when I would say not for the first time in many years, the future shape of the European Union has become a matter of dispute and often ill-tempered debate. In the ongoing and lingering shadow of Brexit and of social forces, which have given rise to so much doubt across Europe, the challenges of the next decade simply cannot be met by any reissuing of an invitation to a new generation of any revamped version of the old orthodoxies. The refurbishing of what has gone out of balance in failing models will simply be insufficient. For example, it is clear, as researchers have said, which I've already made reference, that the existing aspirations to integration cannot accommodate without contradiction such diverse models of capitalism, not to speak of such measures as would retain cohesion as a major aim. Thus, they are certainly not capable of restoring a sense of authenticity, resonance or meaning to a citizenship of the European street. A new mind for Europe is required, one which requires a casting aside of failing assumptions within inadequate models. It requires new symmetries between the social, the economic, the cultural and the ethical, and indeed I would say the natural. These symmetries, if they are to be achieved, will require changes in the institutional architecture of the Union. Yet if the intellectual and political contribution of the Union's members is simply one of reaction and adjustment to a wild, unregulated globalisation, the prospects for such are poor. <coughs> the space for the new institutional architecture and the role of intellectual work is something for which people will have to fight. It is also a question, which time will not allow me to deal with here in this afternoon in an adequate fashion, 
as to whether the massively increased realm of the unaccountable at global level, the forms of financialized capital, its success in defeating international accountability, may have made democracy itself impossible. And the starkness of my statement as to prospects suggests the urgency of the legitimation crisis that has now begun to beckon. Social cohesion is fracturing as inequalities in wealth, power and income are deepening, as labour becomes more precarious and our societies become increasingly divided between what is often lazily described as the lucky and the left out, the left behind, those on the street and those behind gated communities, between those who can access highly paid employment and those left to struggle on zero-hour contracts. These are real deepening and threatening cleavages. Within the European Union, cohesion between the member states has also declined, creating, I suggest again, a problem of connection and legitimacy with the European street, as we have allowed ourselves to become divided by a common one-size-fits-all macroeconomic policy framework, which continues to pit creditor against debtor and those with trade surpluses against those without, those in the north against those in the south. It is difficult to see the sharing a union implies by definition in the defence, too, of asymmetrical advantages that flowed from the impatient establishment of a monetary union without adequate architecture. Yet there are challenges within on which we could cooperate, yet bring a union into existence, even one such as that inspired by the thinking of the visionaries of Vintetene. I refer to the opportunities to address together boldly our responses to climate change, the forms of growth we need to change, including, as I've said, the imbalance between nature and an economic form that is reminding us that our planet is not insatiable, forms of economic life and practice that assumed an unquestioned, unquestioned form of infinite, assumed infinite accelerated growth, far beyond efficiency, and which, if sustainability is ever to be achieved, must be questioned and alternatives established. The unprecedented accumulation of greenhouse gases in the Earth's atmosphere, a legacy of a mere two centuries of industrial civilization, which has been able to threaten a four and a half billion year old planet, whose human population is now most vulnerable to, and as yet unprepared for, the catastrophic consequences of climate change, with all of the devastating implications that flow from that, for the displacement of people, involuntary migration, the degradation of the environment, the eruption of new conflicts over diminishing natural resources. All of this must concern us all. In those times of the economic conditions that I describe as hubris, which were ones of uncritical pursuit of ever-accelerating growth without consideration as to consequence, of silent toleration, of powerful elite opposition to regulation, the space for any pluralist discourse became narrow and, when it was allowed, made uncomfortable. Many policymakers, shapers and takers were ensnared in a single paradigm of thought, an extreme hegemonic theory of the market, 
which was too readily accepted as some form of inevitability, an unavoidable achievement of modernity. It was a discourse on which the voice of the street was not merely neglected, but excluded. Politics was rendered servile or near impotent in service to what is ever more abstract and unaccountable. It found its extreme expression in the assumption that there was no area of life in which the optimum circumstance could not be provided from the marketplace. Previous egalitarian discourses, so general in Europe at a particular period, they lost their space. The concept of the public world was now out of fashion, and in so many circles it could not be heard, scarcely tolerated. To speak of redistribution was to be regarded as having been stuck in the past. The models within which we have struggled, as I have described them, favoured concentration in ownership, unregulated accumulation of wealth, and both of these were often achieved by the privatisation of what had previously been public assets, part of the public world. Such a version of modernity, of course, would in time not find any contradiction either when it was suggested as unavoidable for the socialisation of private speculative debt, a debt that had not been the result of the action of the public or any working on their behalf, but rather of private speculative investors and their institutions. The accountability gap has opened up then between the practice, form, assumptions and demands of the economy and the experience of citizens, and I believe that it is capable of creating a legitimacy crisis, that it is already underway. It is much more than a defective communications problem. Treating it as a defective communications problem is in fact so markedly insufficient. And of course a rectification of all this would be assisted by having a debate as to the ideas that might guide public policy. However, the European Union's experience at decision-making level has not been one of drawing on its intellectual or philosophical pluralist traditions, of privileging pluralist discourse, or of inviting its publics to such, and then to the timescales of such do not appeal to those who celebrate the opportunities of transacting capital, speculatively rather than productively, as I have said, and in ever shorter versions of real time. As the speed of capital transfers, becomes ever more fast and mysterious, the uncomprehending publics are driven in their alienation to become mute. As Professor Hartmut Rosa puts it in his recent work, the concept he uses is mute. I quote, mute in the face of what is presented to them and sadly too easily perceived as unknowable. As a sociologist, I say I think this is very important work. How is the world to be engaged with? Engaged with as a source of fear, as engaged with as a source of fulfillment. This is what I think he means by his concept of resonance towards a sociology of resonance in the world. And if now, if we now question, why do some seek solace in the simplistic or the bombastic or indeed seem captured by apathy? 
or have begun to even speak of the death knell of participatory democracy. We must acknowledge that for too long they, the publics, have been presented with too few meaningful alternatives as would check what was unaccountable, challenge elite interpretations of what need not be made complex beyond the capacity of public understanding. In my own papers, I have said good scholarship would suggest to you that there is nothing so complex that it cannot be made comprehensible if adequately, if adequately presented. And many of the underlying assumptions of the dominant narrative were insufficiently contested by scholars and institutions of learning, whose own structures were gradually becoming ever more vulnerable to the dictates and the demands of the market. The ethos of the commercial was defeating the ethos of scholarship and of collective scholarship. Alternative perspectives from critical scholarship were disregarded or indeed sometimes ridiculed. One of those, for example, are scholars in the United States that I regularly communicate with is not allowed to uh, direct the work of master students or doctoral students because of his perceived views of being unreliable in relation to market theory. When the most recent global financial crisis came, the street, the street bore the brunt of the failures to pursue those alternative modes of thought neglected. The pain on the street was compounded by a sense of exclusion from the decision-making around the complex, often technical efforts introduced to stem what were described as the calamitous tides. I think, too, there is a huge price that was paid for this. Many of the underlying assumptions of the dominant narrative not only were insufficiently contested, but alternative perspectives from critical scholarship were disregarded. And even, I can say, as a participant in some of those discourses, offered ridicule rather than intellectual contestation. This was not, of course, a uniquely European experience, but under severe strain, many on the street perceived a slow unraveling of the solidarity upon which they understood the European Union had been founded and was to be based. And this apparent privileging of a limited, narrow version of an economic union, one which, unlike that which the Lisbon Treaty had spoken of, or might have suggested, had offered parity of esteem between competitiveness and cohesion, has had profound consequences for social cohesion, from which I would argue European unity is reeling. A dangerous vacuum has emerged among the mute and the excluded available for exploitation, for filling with all prejudices of hate, fictionalized difference, fears and abuse of media. And this image then, as you have heard me describe it, of a crisis-ridden Europe is far removed from the conception of a shared union, such a union as had been conceived from the cataclysm of the Second World War. The union of Jean Monnet and his contemporaries had, after all, drawn in its time from a rich heritage of scholarship, philosophy, and the most generous impulses of the European tradition as the founders sought to lay the foundations for what they wanted as a lasting peace. It was a peace not mentioned for rhetorical flourish, but which sought to be built not just on capital or markets, 
but also on the vindication of the fullness of the human experience. Informed by philosophy and leading to fundamental economic, social and cultural rights. And it is a legitimate question on the street to ask as one looks at the sources of European philosophy, where can you show its influence today in the rhetoric of those who are speaking about crisis or the future of the European Union? I think too often as we look to the future, we fail to adequately appreciate the rich and diverse roots of the European project. And as we seek to find a new mind for Europe, out of the ashes of our present threatening fragmentation, there is now a pressing need to recall the rich infusion of ideas and ideals upon which our Union had sought to be built. The European Union offered to you now, as young intellectual workers, as material not only for your reflection but for your achievement, completion, as students of political economy, as material, is indeed far from perfect. Its problems, too, are far beyond the economic, beyond what is quantifiable. There is a yearning for authenticity to which you must respond, I suggest. How would you like to be remembered as having worked in political economy in the future? As people with a narrow range of skills, able to measure what might often be insignificant, or to have participated in the formation of the mind that was necessary for the building of the Union upon which some of the best minds in Europe hoped. And as one looks to the European street, and I have used that concept so regularly, there is an inescapable sense of disconnect between the needed fresh visionary proposals that risk being dismissed as rhetoric, but are relevant and necessary if the lived experience of the most disenfranchised are to be addressed. It is and always will be insufficient to keep an academic distance. It may seem to those on the European street, as Michael Longo and Philomena Murray have suggested, that I quote, the European Union's future no longer seems to be informed by the vision of the past. There is therefore an urgent need not just to re-engage with the street, but to re-engage with what it means to be European and what it means to hope to be European and what we want for its future. It demands a revival of the concept of social justice, of the social contract, of the common good, which for too long has been absent from our discourse. We are seeing evidence of its, the gradual recovery of this perspective in new critical theory. And that is why I so welcome in particular the new work of scholars such as Professor Hartmut Rosa, who has been developing what you have heard me already use, the concept of resonance and developing an interdisciplinary approach to a public sociology of the common good. There are also ever louder calls coming from civil society for inclusive growth and for policies to address inequality and for sustainable growth. It is a time to seize these new opportunities of an intellectual time and turn them into policies for a better living, sustainable life. The European Union today also faces, of course, a unique opportunity and responsibility to assert, or where necessary, reassert its founding values of democracy, human rights and the rule of law in a world in which those values are increasingly challenged. And the internationalism that gave us an implementable international law is now being openly challenged. 
The experience of solidarity in Europe must be, I suggest, the foundation on which our Union's external action is based. For the academic community, of which I myself have been a part, it demands, for example, a response that moves beyond the limited approach to the teaching of economics that has pervaded in recent decades towards a new interdiscipline pluralist theoretical frameworks that can make connections between the lives of our citizens, the economy, society, culture, ecology and policy. Our work in education together must aim to help people make sense of the world. It must be of a quality that will withstand scrutiny. It must, as this centre offers to do, turn its attention to the difficult and often neglected questions that are contained within considerations as to the future of European integration. I believe the issues of contemporary Europe are incapable of resolution without a significant paradigm shift in intellectual work and practice, work that will inevitably inform policy and political choice. Pessimism, sadly, is a feature of the contemporary work of some of the most distinguished scholars who have been contributing their intellectual abilities towards understanding the current dilemma of illegitimacy in which the European Union now finds itself. Scholars such as Jürgen Habermas and Wolfgang Strieff. Yet, there are undoubtedly challenges, but there are opportunities too. And while the appeal of such writers may have been in recent times shown an aspect of an increasing desperation, yet even out of despair, those such as Jürgen Habermas continue to offer strategies that are available for cooperation between member states in the mid-term, such as, for example, a redefinition of subsidiarity, new forms of assistance in reconnecting with European citizens for renewing the European vision and thus offering hope to the most vulnerable. And in the interim, there are experiments that may yet come and are already coming from such areas in theory as new institutional economics. Last year, I posed a number of questions which I believe needed to be answered in any debate regarding the future direction of our Union. Can the macroeconomic framework of the European Union sanction and protect a diversity of models, both in terms of the welfare state and alternative economic models? Can the formulation of monetary policy accommodate such difference? Can it respond to such contradictions, which would be part of my answer? Can the rules of the internal market yield where they can? and surrender when they must to the demands of labour? How do we resolve what has become an apparent clash between our fundamental values and principles, such as solidarity and a commitment to social justice? And parts of what I've said in the past might be referred to as the economic constitution of the Union. These are questions I will repeat again, which cannot be answered within the frame of the old orthodoxies. Neither can they be neglected except at a great cost. Such questions are not offered as any call to despair, for history, after all, is littered with the failures of certainties abandoned and resilience of peoples and the introduction and accommodation of new realities. The genius of Jean Monnet was to create institutions which he knew could be mended, even bended, in the light of events to cope with a succession of crises the Union has had to weather over the last 60 years. I remain confident 
that a proper, broad and inclusive discourse can help us too to find the meaningful and lasting alternatives that are much longed for in our universities, in our parliaments, across our institutions, and I believe, above all, on the European street. Respect for, the search for and articulation of new perspectives will produce alternatives, policy options, never inevitabilities. Behind each option will lie a series of implications for the citizen about which we must be ever vigilant. At their best, these policy options will show solidarity with the human condition, a great European philosophical concept right there at the centre of Hannah Arendt and others. They will support human dignity, addressing issues around the future of work, seeing its significance far beyond being a source of income for consumption, insecurity of housing and health, and the preservation of our increasingly fragile planet. To create the global intellectual capacity to respond to these questions, it is clear that we must reimagine the way we teach and research economics. I've spoken many times of the international failings in the teaching of economics. When I spoke in the United States some years ago, I spoke of how Economics 101 in the United States commences its teaching of the subject at perfect competition, leaving students with a shrunken and shriveled picture of the history and practice of economic theory and policy. If the global financial crisis has taught us anything, it is that a pluralist scholarship is required, one that students are entitled to expect and be offered, one which can more properly critique our present and not so recent history, and properly critique and anticipate the social and economic world in which we live and which we seek to change for shared human benefit. It is not any mere normative option to be vaguely recognised. It is better economics, resonant of the finest minds in the history of political economy. And it is a travesty to teach the subject, political economy, ignoring those who have made contribution of the most deep human kind to it as a subject. For the history of thought, after all, suggests that even established economic thinking, when blended with some of the more contemporary work, married to the evolution of philosophical thinking, can provide, as it were, a trail of breadcrumbs into previously unheralded spaces where we might discover the answers to some of these questions and the solutions to some of the most intractable challenges facing the planet today. Let us recall that the great transformation of Karl Palanyi, first published in 1944, not long after the Manifesto of Entertainment. The book celebrates its 75th birthday this year, but still resonates with me because it challenged the understanding of the meaning of economics, thought up to that point to be the logic of rational action and decision-making as simply rational choice between the alternative uses of scarce resources. Polanyi's theory of substantivism in its time critiqued and went beyond rational decision-making and scarcity, referring instead and contemplating the fullness of how humans make a living interacting within their social and natural environments. Economics is the way society meets material needs. And then Gunnar Myrdal's work, other work of course, another seminal example 
of engaged research, real scholarship in the subject that is political economy. It is such departures as they made into new thinking that might revitalize the study of economics and thus help to provide new political solutions in our fractured society. But such a new approach must, of course, in order to be relevant today, give adequate space to gender as well as equality in economics. In that regard, I have been so very greatly heartened and inspired too by the recent work of some distinguished women in the economics field. At a recent event at Oris and Uchtron, to celebrate International Women's Day, I spoke of the new ground being broken by Irish women, paving the way for a new generation of women who will use their talent and creativity in the pursuit of a better world and an enhanced future for all our citizens. And what I had in mind too was, we know that women engaged in research have the advantage of drawing inspiration from their experiences as women, that women frequently use that experience when choosing their area of research, the research they wish to pursue, and the questions that they choose to ask. We also know that a female perspective can make a profound difference even when researching issues that may seem entirely unrelated to gender. And may I offer just two brief examples of what I see as exciting new emancipatory work in the field. Sylvia Walby in her book Crisis has offered an invaluable set of linked insights in her writing of the effect on society of the financial crisis, which in turn led to the economic crisis of recession and unemployment, and caused a fiscal crisis over government deficits, and which then through the reply of austerity was offered as policy in turn evolving into a political crisis, one that threatens to become a democratic crisis. Born unevenly, the effects of all these crises have exacerbated gender and class inequalities. She identifies the hidden gendered causes and consequences of these crises and suggests, for example, that gender inequality in access to financial decision-making is to the detriment of economic development because of the inefficiencies that this creates. The conflict between democracy and capitalism, she suggests, can only be resolved through a deepening of democracy. It is not democracy that must give way. And then, in the value of everything, making and taking in the global economy, Mariana Masakato explores the concept of value today, showing how value extraction is now so much more highly rewarded than value creation. Masakato has opened a new dialogue by reminding us, and the reminder was overdue, that the creation of value is collective, that policy can be more meaningfully inclusive through the co-shaping and co-creating of social markets, and that real progress requires a dynamic division of labour focused on the problems of the 21st century societies and that they are creating. She also suggests that governments can and do play a pivotal role in creating value despite being viewed by some ideologues as an inherently unproductive sector. Mazzucato believes that government should become an active value creator rather than just a facilitator of the real economy or simply a spender during crises. We are on the cusp of a digital transformation now. It will bring with it challenges and opportunities. It will confront us with its challenges much sooner than we expect. And we need to be ready as a policy to offer its opportunities as widely as possible and be prepared, of course, 
for the disruption it may offer society as a whole. Are its benefits simply to flow to the few and its threats to flow to the many? We will require policy options that can cater for and accommodate the principles and values by which we might all live together ethically and in a manner that will ensure intergenerational fairness. And can we allow ourselves then, as we seek to do that, let us again be able to speak about universal provision. In conclusion, Marfaka Square, may I repeat that there are two great transcendent areas of cooperation, inspiring projects that we can share irrespective of borders anywhere on our planet. The formulation of the Sustainable Development Goals and the Paris Climate Change have held out the hope that transformative approaches are possible and from those transformative approaches that other transformations will flow. And it seems to me to be so obvious that our discourses must be ones that include and empower the citizen in the fullest sense. It has been my firm belief for some time that in this century, and you have a responsibility in it, that economic literacy may be as important to cohesion, citizenship and democracy as mass literacy was in previous generations for the struggles of political representation. This new and deepened literacy can help ensure that our citizens are equipped to participate in discussions and debates about the policy decisions that impinge on their daily lives, what ensured respect for their dignity and their human rights. Such an inclusion and participation can be emancipatory in effect and in doing so be a source of strength to a real union of the peoples. So may I suggest that our discourses of the future can also be only made stronger by the integration of the principles of philosophy. These are principles which are within the reach of all people but require constant nourishing. Philosophy enables us to look beyond the obvious, beyond the perspective of reality that is bounded, or worse, still blinded by assumption or doctrine, and nurtures the creative and humane thinking necessary for truly functioning societies. Without it, we are, to paraphrase Albert Einstein, the people who see a thousand trees but never the forest. It is not, dear friends, a time to be mute. Grim Gokrari, a beggar I so wish you success and personal achievement and social achievement and liberation and joy as you engage with all of these challenges that I have been mentioning. And I want to wish Dr. Regan and all who study, study in and contribute to the vital work of the centre every success in their endeavours. Thank you.